paying taxes in France before the revolution was an act of pure madness. Imagine you're in the working class, also known as the third estate. By 1780, almost everyone in France was part of this third estate tax bracket. Farmers, ranchers, craftsmen, fishermen, domestic laborers, everyone except the nobility and the clergy, the top 4%, were paying half of everything they earned. But when tax season comes around, there's no easy form to fill out. Instead, it's a painful, convoluted, outdated system designed to take as much from you as possible while providing exemptions and loopholes for the nobility. Here's how it broke down. First was the old regime tax. This was levied against your property. But if you didn't have property, under certain circumstances, it'd be levied against you as an individual, but not nobles. Nobles were exempt from the old regime tax. Then came tithe for church. This was one-tenth of everything you farmed. If you didn't tithe, you wouldn't get into heaven and God-fearing merchants would stop doing business with you. Then there was a tax on goods, like a sales tax, except less predictable. It included things like tobacco, iron, and wine. And there was the 120th tax, which was supposed to be temporary income tax to help the French recover the cost from the Austrian war. Except the 120th tax kept getting extended by the nobles and never went away. And again, the nobles were able to get exemptions by giving gifts to the crown. Finally, there was the head tax. At first, it was levied against every adult citizen, and payment depended on your profession, except the nobility found ways to reduce their payments. Now, if you're a farmer, you might think a government tax collector would come to take your money. By taxing the public with such a lucrative business, France began using tax farmers, who were wealthy individuals allowed to collect taxes on behalf of the government. So imagine walking outside your farmhouse on a tax day, looking at your dying fields because the market price for wheat is sky high due to inflation. You pass by unmilked cows and broken plows because you can't afford labor to work on them. And you hand over half your money to armed thugs who are making a killing by saving the king's men the hassle of visiting your farm themselves. And to add insult to injury, while your farm is dying, your animals are starving, your family is going hungry, the queen is building a farm at the palace so she can dress up like a milkmaid with her friends and cosplay as peasants. The taxes you just paid are going toward building the queen's pretend farm on the grounds of the palace. It's extravagant, impractical, overpriced, since it was designed by the queen's favorite architect. Marie Antoinette may have never actually uttered the phrase, let them eat cake, but she sure as hell didn't hide the fact that she was spending money pretending to be a peasant while the real peasants were dying.
You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet. Marie Antoinette wasn't the airheaded, decadent, selfish queen revolutionary history made her out to be. Marie Antoinette actually volunteered for public charity, tried to manage the crown's money after her husband was executed, and wasn't even a French queen at all. She was Austrian, which means she married into leadership over a country that had already been crushed by a century of unfair, outdated taxes. All it would have taken was one good public relations specialist, or a few trustworthy accountants, to tell her that building a fake farm while France's real farm starved was an imbecile idea and would get her beheaded. Marie Antoinette needed social mirrors, advisors who weren't like the rest of the backstabbing French court, people who wouldn't keep mum about her poor decision-making. Consequently, that's what today's episode is all about. Today we're talking about the mum effect and why the same factors that kept Marie advisors silent about her bad decisions are probably keeping your Life mentors quiet. Myth one, make a list of all your friends. Who among them would tell you you're making a mistake? What if you're really excited to make that mistake? What if you're adamant about making it? Myth two, who's more likely to share bad information with you? Friends, families, strangers? What if none of them are? What if everyone's instincts are to keep mum? Myth three, if everyone is so programmed socially to hide bad information from you, then how do we improve as people? How do we smash through the mum effect to find good feedback? We're going to get to our myths, but first I want to tell Joe about the Queen's Hamlet, also known for the most expensive version of Plain House in the history of mankind. I realized while I was writing this episode, uh, this is all based on data from the book we're working on for the podcast. The mum effect... Like it, it, it is everything in, in public speaking. I realize that I've used you, Todd, as a social mirror way too often. Like you're finding somebody who is unlike yourself, but is sharp and can point out your flaws and how you're coming across to people. That That's that's the biggest value I took away from public speaking was actually getting feedback. And I, I think I've seen the same thing with you from time to time. Well, I was horrible taking feedback until I started working with you. Um, probably the best advice you've given me and you've given me lots of good advice through the years <sighs> taking I'm very oversensitive I run on a hundred percent emotion and when somebody says anything that I find somewhat critical I think that they don't like me and I think they're wrong but after working with you on public speaking and um, you gave me this advice and, and I want to share this with our with our listeners no matter how poorly some feedback or advice is given there's usually some truth to it so if you can just remember that, and the more it hurts, the more it's probably true. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> if it doesn't bother you, you know, the, you, you got to kind of weed through it. But there, there's always some truth in it. It's just poorly delivered or not tactfully delivered, I guess. Right. Okay. So um, I had a boss who, who fell into the mum effect. Um, I had a boss at my last job where... Um, they they were good at their job. Most of their job was scheduling and human resources, 
they they rose to the rank of basically um, managerial, even though all of their experience was about uh, private security and investigations. So like they were ill prepared to do their job. And nobody corrected them. Like, like everybody around them just sort of like went with their poor decisions. Didn't tell them that they were coming off as like stodgy and and jerky and and yeah, like 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 they, they were. No, yeah, they yeah. knew it all, right? They, but this was not transferable. Their experience was not. It just didn't fit, right? That's that's precisely it. And really, honestly, all they had to do was if they had told us, you know, hey, I'm I'm not prepared to do this, or you know, uh, help me out with your scheduling a bit or, or something. Like if they had even like an ounce of uh, asking for us to work with them, everybody would have. We were all well, like like I, I was working with a really good team at the time. Like all of us were pros and we could have helped. And no one did. No one said anything. Nobody even corrected them. And when I was reading about the mum effect, I, I was like, oh, that's that. Like that that's having a leader who... You know, you don't help them correct a blind side because there's nothing in it for you. I'm immediately thinking about NFL football and college football because these head coaches become the kings of, and then and coaching, you know, the women too, you know, a lot of women's basketball teams, volleyballs and stuff. Um, they've been doing this all their lives. They're ex-players. They've been successful coaches in other organizations. That's why they're the head coach now. But they get so isolated that, they just make bad decisions and no one's willing to stand up for them because they're the CEO. They hire everybody. Right. So they just let them and their egos get the best of them and they say stupid things. They get this godlike complex and it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a middle level manager at a, <laughs> at a store somewhere at the mall or if, or if you're running, uh, if you're, if you're running Intel, you know, if you, if you get isolated with, with, and they aren't willing to take good feedback, yeah, and people aren't willing to tell you the truth. Oh, you're just not willing to listen to it, right? Right. Well, that's that's the other part of it is you mentioned uh, you're not willing to listen to it. That is basically what I know. You've met him, and I'm not trash talking him. He'll never listen to this episode. But my brother, the reason why my brother never went to Toastmasters and or, or you know or took classes on public speaking is because feedback is hard for him, and I understand that as. You know, he, he, he suffers from depression like I do, um, and his mind is sharp and quick, and, and he can store a lot of information, but the inability to take that feedback means no one shares with him the flaws he should be correcting. And that's the, the poison in most of my family, is I've realized throughout the years, oh, we're all very defensive, we, it's hard for us to take feedback, and there's nothing in it for anybody to help come along and mentor them if they can't take that feedback, if they can't be corrected. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of what the whole, pre uh, episode premise today is, is we, it, it really benefits us to find a social mirror who can look at our flaws and feed back to us, you know, where we're coming up short and where we're not exactly meeting our goals. And what are these glaring, obvious things that, you know, a stranger could help us fix if they talked with us for five minutes, but no one in our life does because, I mean, evolution-wise, it's not. There's no reward in it. Like if you're, if you are ancient man, and the chief is in the cave talking about how we're going to hunt another mammoth today, and he is, you know, like let's use our spears instead of our bows. No one's going to correct him because there's almost nothing beneficial in it to correct them. 
Like there's there's no reward unless it is like directly going to save your life. And there's um, risk in it too. Of the of and, and of course in those times it was life or death. But in today's time of of losing your job or losing a friend or someone not liking you, right? I mean, I think it comes off as you're being criticized and and what as humans we become over defensive. I know I do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And why risk making a boss or a friend defensive? I think that's really just like that could be that could be boiled down. The episode could be over right now. We're just like, why make someone else defensive for no reason? And oh, it's not over yet. I got a lot of stuff to talk about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and the first one being, um, we're going to talk about Queen's Hamlet. So we're going to talk about the Queen's Marie's um, very expensive hobby. <laughs> well, okay. Real quick, I want to remind everybody who Mary Antoinette is, and this is a very dumb thing to say, but. Everyone thinks that the last straw for the French Revolution, the thing that made everybody start beheading the rich, was Mary Antoinette saying, let them eat cake. Everybody thinks that, like, well, there's this that. event. S- say what happened and yeah. why, why, that, why, that, why the timing of that was so poor. So the, the, the phrase comes from, and, and has become, like, it's still used politically now. Um, I think it was, uh, um, oh, God, what was that celebrity? Uh, I think it was Ellen DeGeneres was, like, on Twitter during COVID and was like, I'm locked in my house and this is terrible. And somebody's like, you live in a mansion. This is the, this is the, the today's version of let them eat cake. Um, the phrase comes from the French Revolution where the queen of France, you know, somebody, somebody comes up to her while she's, you know, in her palace and they say, you know, ma'am, the, 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 the people cannot afford bread. They can't eat. And she says, while she's eating sweets, she says, let them eat cake. Because that's how disconnected she is. Why can't you just give them some of the food that we're eating? Um, it totally reminds me during COVID, the thing um, Donald Trump's daughter said when people didn't, there was all these job layoffs and everything. She said, well, let, let, let them just start a business. That's what, exactly what it reminded yeah. me of the first time. <laughs> and like, they just don't, they just a total disconnect. Like they yeah. never thought of that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like where would they get that money and the, the loan to do that? Yeah. No, there, just there do, is. Just do something else. Start a business. As as wealth gets separated in America, I see so many like more and more each year. I see more Twitter uh, conversations from the extremely wealthy that sound exactly like "Let them eat cake," except it's not made up. Uh, Mary Antoinette's phrase "Let them eat cake" that was never uttered by her. That was actually um, a publisher who was doing a French newspaper who was slandering her made it up. Um, Marie Antoinette didn't say that, but she. She totally did build a playhouse farm in the palace, and it was a massively bad idea. So, like, her phrase, let them eat cake, did not kick off the French Revolution. However, her making a fake farm totally did. That is actually what the the French people claimed was the last thing that they would put up with. So... Can we talk about the Queen's Hamlet? Because I'm I'm giddy. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I I want to talk. I'll study for this. Uh, the Queen's Hamlet is really amazing. You ever think about people um, having like really nice, elaborate dollhouses? And we all, as kids, we played house, right? We all played games. We played houses and played. But instead of playing war, I, I have so many other things she should have done with her time. Like you know, you could play war, or you could play ha- house, or make your own Shakespeare play with your friends, right? Not right, her. Get into music. They built instead of dollhouses. They they created a whole farm of peasants' houses, but they made them very elaborate. So they were designed by an architect 
to look on the outside very um, rustic, very realistic. But inside, they had all they they had just amazing trappings. They had crazy, insane rooms. Um, show goats wearing ribbons. Um, milkmaids in like silk outfits. They used special <laughs> milking. They had animals brought in, like props, like you would see in Hollywood. Of course, the most beautiful of ones, and and they would be you know milking them was a you know source of food in those days. But instead of metal buckets, you know, um, humble metal buckets that most people would use, they were made these beautiful porcelain things that probably we wouldn't be allowed to touch today <laughs> with gold uh, with gold lettering on them. And she would take her friends and they would dress down, not dirty, but they would dress like the locals who were, now keep in mind, there's 20 million, they're 98% of the population. And from our intro, the, the real life farmers, their crops and their family and their animals were starving to death. So she's parading around this neighborhood village with her friends now, one of the big fatal flaws I think she made in this is she brought in actual people that live that life as like extras, <laughs> actors and actresses to stand around and to pretend to be working. Isn't this fucking crazy? That is that is actually I, I believe that's how the the word of the um, fake French village got out. And well, they brought want... in what they referred to. I got to say what they referred to. Simple oh, yeah. people. <laughs> See, that makes me want to cut somebody's head off this minute when I hear that. You know, uh, the hardworking people that are paying for all this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're simple because they work all the time. Now, you and I, uh, we've, we've worked a lot of quote unquote simple jobs. Imagine being a craftsman or like you, you are a farmer of some sort and like you are living a hard life already and you get lucky enough to score a job working on the palace and you think you're going to show up and like i'm going to garden their their you know bushes like i'll i'll make rose bushes for the king or like i'm going to be you know doing these these farm things and you arrive and it's a village like they've built a mock up of your french village and it reminds you... it reminds me of that story we did in an earlier episode about the trolls remember where they'd have people come and live in in royalty's yard Oh yeah, seven or eight years, and they would let their nails grow long, and their beards would grow. And yeah, the <laughs> fake druids that that used to live in yeah. Uh, and that's rich the people's... reason why we see those troll things in people's yards now. That's where it started. People that used to be a real job that you do for seven <laughs> or eight years as an indentured servant. They'd throw bread at you once in a while, and you would just be there for their amusement. Yeah, as a status Pre symbol. There are versions of this in the real world. Uh, there are like rich people who will like, um, I mean, like the righteous gemstones made a joke of it, but like having a, a private, um, oh, what do you call it? Like a, a, an amusement park, having a private amusement park on private lands, but you are an actual amusement park, um, operator and they hire you to operate it when their friends come over. Like there's like you wear the uniform, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, just so, it's just so ridiculous. Yeah, anybody um, – I tried to look for who Marie Antoinette's um, advisors were, and she had advisors. She had um, nobility helping her. But the problem with Marie Antoinette is uh, there was a gap. 
Um, like we said, she was originally Austrian. She was brought into French leadership. Like she was made the French queen at a young age. I think she was 14. And basically like she had no control over how the French saw her because she married a king who was um, the overseeing all these terrible ancient taxes that ruined the bulk of the people's lives. So she was one of three daughters and, and she was actually gifted. So, so two of, two of her sisters died. So she was the last of the Austrian princesses and she was only 14 when she was given to the, to, to soon be king. You know, he wasn't, he's a prince then or whatever, but so, as a political thing to to make their countries, Austria and France, get along. So she yeah. was gifted there. So she came into this system, but she did self-appoint a lot of people who were unqualified, friends and family and people of, of bloodlines, not of qualifications. So her inner right. circle was already a little you know, unqualified to begin with. So if she had one person who was like good at running a political campaign... Uh, or if, or if she had one person that was like actually qualified to run public relations, they probably would have told her, "This is a terrible idea. Please don't make a fake farm for your friends to hang out at and basically mock the peasants." Like that's that's what it was seen as is, you know, they're they're making a fake farm with a bunch of show animals and all this rich stuff and like extreme French opulence in the buildings, and they're like. Why are you making fun of peasants? Like this? pretending to enjoy it. That was the big thing. The happiness. Yeah. The joy. The... <laughs> oh, look at me. I'm working like a normal person. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. A lot of people in America play work today. So we, we get this. We get this. <laughs> uh, this is, yeah, this is the extreme version of, like you said, you said playing like dollhouses. But I, I was thinking about um, those plastic um, toys that you give to kids where it's like, uh, the kid's first um, like construction set, like it, it's got a fake plastic saw and the the, the oh. fake plastic drill. <laughs> yeah, there's and the nurse and there's the yeah, yeah, <laughs> the the little plastic stove you give to a toddler. Um, so let's let's get into the actual science of this. Um, I want to talk about uh, the the original study of the mum effect and why it is sort of an overlooked segment of psychology and why self-awareness is basically becoming the new hotness in um, pop psychology. Um, we've talked about her on the show before. Uh, there is a woman who's sort of leading the self-awareness charge. Her name is Tasha Yurich, and she wrote the book Insight. And she talks about this, uh, this study where um, they wanted to find out, and this study was done in like the 70s, so it was around before her book, but she called attention to why it is important. Uh, and the idea is that people generally don't want to deliver bad advice, bad news, bad anything. Um, and when you first sort of hear that, when I first heard that, like she, she said that during one of her TED Talks, and I was like, that's bullshit. I will deliver bad advice all day. I don't care about keeping friends. I'll tell people when they are. Because <laughs> you're the world's biggest jerk. I don't like it. That's the old don't shoot the don't shoot the messenger. I think that's a right. better feeling. I think it's like, it gives me the heebie-jeebies even thinking about it. You know, I think of the doctor walking out and say, "Yeah, she didn't make it. I'm so we did everything we could." Right. Well, that's that. That kind of led me to think like, 
you know, how many friends do I know where it's like they're kind of a jerk and so they're willing to tell you bad news or, or bad, yeah, when you're there messing up? There are a up. lot of those out there. Joe's not yeah. one. I'm just teasing. He's talking tough, but he's about as he's politically <laughs> correct in delivering bad news as there is. Well, I yeah, but, but who is willing to take the time and the effort to deliver the bad news? And, you know, is it something where, like, 50-50? Do half the people out there... Are they willing to tell you that your dog died? Are half the people out there willing to tell you you have broccoli in your teeth? Are half the people out there willing to be your friend and say, hey, buddy, you are doing really, you know, like you're not providing for your family correctly or, or you know, you need to work on your public speaking or you're coming off as harsh every time you open your mouth at, at work. So, like, how uh, – basically we want to first say that – this study was to find out how many people are actually not willing to deliver bad news. Is it really in our DNA to yeah. try to go under the radar, like fly under the radar and make nice? How, how much is that in humanity? And this study was eye-opening. Like it, it was like, oh, oh, we are, we are designed to uh, be friendly and to not sort of like confront people for no reason. Um, so the way they structured the study is they would have 20 patients in a waiting room. And they would all be sort of like filling out paperwork uh, and like working on something. They'd give them something to do. And while these 20 people are in a waiting room, the um, the subject of the test, Glenn, would be on his way. And so the way the study would work is one of the researchers would come into the room. They'd say, hey, everybody, Glenn is on his way. He's the last piece of this puzzle. Once he gets here, we can get started with the actual research or whatever. You know, they, nobody knows why they're there to test. They just know that they are there to participate in a test of some sort. And so they don't think it's started yet. And the researcher says, when Glenn gets here, we're going to start. Um, but you should all know, uh, Glenn's family dog slipped out of the yard when the mailman opened the office and or fence and uh, the dog was crushed by a truck. Uh, the dog probably won't make it. Somebody needs to tell Glenn to call his wife. Uh, and everyone nods. Uh, 20 people in the waiting room make uncomfortable eye contact, like thinking about who's actually going to tell Glenn. And then 20 minutes later, uh, a man walks in with a name tag that says, hello, I'm Glenn. He walks into the room, he sits down, and he starts his paperwork like everybody else. How many people are going to give him the bad news that his dog has probably died? I'm thinking four. <laughs> four out of 20 is actually pretty good. Um they basically found out that the most common reaction was for strangers to say nothing at all, um, and that it was significantly higher than 50%. It, it, the original test, I think, I, I don't remember what the exact number was, but it was like in the neighborhood of like 60 to 70%, and they got it higher. Like the, the, like when they, when they changed the news, like did Glenn's daughter win a spelling bee, or did his mother pass her cancer screening? Um, they, they could, by tweaking... Oh, and they tried it with females, too. There was uh, Gwendolyn or something like that. But um, basically, they, they, they managed to find out that they could raise the knob or lower it on whether or not the participants told the subject the bad news. Um, and that's not really a good thing. Like, like it, it sounds so small and insignificant. This This whole episode sounds like not giving somebody bad news doesn't sound that threatening or that bad. But if the results are you never improve in a small section of your life, if you never get a blind spot pointed out to you, then you're limited artificially. Like you're, you're or, or you're limited just by the nature of like people wanting to save calories and save uh, 
risk of of social ostracism by pissing you off. Um, uh, when we were in, in Story Master, did you ever meet that kid, uh, Ricky, who who told everybody he wanted to be a millionaire and date a supermodel? Like that was the goal of public speaking for him? <laughs> no, that would have been a while. Like what? <laughs> he said that out loud. He said it out loud. Yeah, during a speech, he's like, "This is my my goal. Like this is this is my um, my destiny." And he was like, "He wanted to be Tony Robbins." Um, and this, I wish I would have met this cat. That's crazy. Was, was he good? No, that's that. That's the thing is, if if somebody of your skill level had told me your goal is to uh, own Tiger's cocaine and and date a supermodel, <laughs> I would have been like, "Well, what are you doing to get it?" Like, like I I would I would take it seriously. I'd be like, "Okay, well, what what are the steps you're taking?" With him, like he he didn't have much charisma or magnetism, and so like he said that, and I, I was just like, "Well, that's just." dumb thinking like I, I thought to myself I was like that is the thinking of somebody from a lower social class like like you want those things but you don't have the personality or the temperament for it it's like saying I want to be a rock star but you don't play a, uh, an instrument and you know it's like, right Whoa, okay it's like a, you want to buy a lottery ticket or what are you talking about You're crazy and, yeah and at the time uh, our group had like a bunch of accomplished speakers like we had somebody from like who worked at NPR. Like we literally had an NPR, um, uh, he was like a, an editor and sound designer. Yeah, we had and a politician, we, you had a trial attorney. I mean, you had some, right, you had, yeah. I mean, <laughs> some real good people in that club. Yeah, a, absolutely. A embarrassment of riches as far as people that could give this kid feedback and no one said anything. Like, like, so like I, I saw Glenn, like, like the, the point of this study is like, we're like, yeah, a, a statistically significant people, amount of people will not tell you bad news if they don't know you. I saw Glenn in person. His name in this case was Ricky and no one told him. And it was like, yeah. So, so if, if anybody had taken the time out of their life to sit down and mentor him like an hour a week, uh, um, any one of those people I mentioned, they could have changed the direction of his life. They could have either made him rethink his goals or they could have made him better. They could have set him up to actually reach them someday. Um, so that's that when I, when I read this study, and when I you think have about regrets the, that you didn't say anything. You were one of those Glenn people. No, um, it, because I come from a, a an area of writing and art. Like my background was in graphic art, and then I went into writing and I started getting into contests. I don't have the time. I recognize that the biggest burglar of time I will face in my life are people wanting to be my friend and get feedback, especially if they haven't gotten to the level you're at. That sounds extraordinarily selfish, but you as a um, as a creative person who wants to make their money in creative ways, you have to be very selective with who you give feedback to. I will give anybody feedback if they ask for it and they give me the thing they're working on. I'll read stuff. I will watch their, their speeches. But as far as mentoring them and being their friend and walking them through the steps in life that would help them, I honestly, like, if I did that, that's all I'd ever do. Like, yeah. I wouldn't have time for any projects have, of mine. You have so many requests. And then, and you've been burned before. You've you've seen what a time waste and time burglar it is to spend time with people who don't want to improve, just just want to be your friend. And Absolutely. You know. And there's there's really nothing wrong with that, wanting to be the friend of somebody who can help you or, or at least has a critical eye. There's, there's an old phrase that, like, uh, a writer is everybody's friend because they can understand what you're saying. Or, or they can understand your life, I think is the way it goes. But yeah, it, it's, and I, I've kind of seen the same with you. I, I've seen you make friends with people who are like, that look like they have a fast trajectory, uh, like upward trajectory of their career or their life, where it looks like they are a, a hard worker. 
and then you have discovered that they're not so much like they they kind of lucked into their position or they're in a good social class or they got the right education. So I, I know that both of us have the experience of we met somebody who really could have used that mirror, that that yeah. that mentor for a while, and we we ducked out. We we did not take that duty. We didn't inform Glenn of anything. There's a lot of this that is kind of also um, reminding me of uh, uh, modern days. Like, do you remember um, when Mark Zuckerberg went on Twitter and started talking about hunting his own food and cooking his own food? Became a minimal oh, survivalist. No, yeah, <laughs> he, doesn't, like, he doesn't seem tough enough. That he doesn't. He does nerd <laughs> tough, maybe, but he doesn't seem tough enough for that kind of stuff. There, there was a period where, like, it, it was specifically about hunting. Like, he's he he, had, he was posting on Twitter like his backyard barbecue, and like he would talk about like he's like I'm only going to eat meat that I've hunted and killed and stuff like that. And it's like, dude, you're Mark Zuckerberg. Nobody gives it. You're pretending to be. Like this, this reminded me so much of Marie Antoinette and the the fake farm. Like this really was like you're pretending to be a survivalist and like like you're going to survive with your own hands and stuff. It's like no, you're not. Like whatever you are doing to hunt, like you are, <laughs> I guarantee you have more benefits and more sort of like better equipment, better you know people to tell you where to go and and you know like people to like cue you up. Um, oh yeah, this is the one where the 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 million dollar dentist goes to goes on the African safari and they, they tie meat to the back of the of a jeep. <laughs> right, so he can kill a then, lion. And then lure the lion within ten feet of the guy and he shoots it for five hundred thousand. That's what that is. I mean it's it's just it's a joke. It's, right. I mean it's just silly. And the same with the, you know, rhinoceros bears, whatever they're after, you know. Right. So this is this is a, a wealthy person wanting to give themselves a narrative that's not real because it would make them feel better. But in reality, if they had a social mirror around them, they would tell them, don't be a dummy. Like, stop, <laughs> stop what you're doing, rethink your life. Uh, yeah, to mentor you out of, out of doing something that will have terrible optics. Mary Antoinette, like, like the, the thing I wanted to, to point out, and, and hopefully you can help me, she, the Queen's Hamlet was an absolutely terrible idea, but everything she did up until then was actually pretty good. Like, like the the tax system, the way her husband ran the country, like it, everything. Like she she did charities. Like it seemed like she was actually a pretty good person, right up until the part where she made a fake farm for her friends to larp on. Am I correct in that? You are, and she really did. She married into a shit show. So she was a young woman. I mean, she's fourteen, and she did a lot of things for the. You know, she was a voice for the poor. She cared about the poor genuinely. Um, I guess the the situation of the country is a big thing. So when she came into power as being the first lady, um, for starters, France was one of the richest countries in Europe at the time. Okay, and there was three social classes, and the lower social class was about twenty million people. That was ninety eight percent of the population, and they paid a hundred percent of the taxes. So the other two social classes, the one social class was very small, which is the king and queen, the, you know, the the supreme leaders, and then there was the nobles and the and all the religious leaders. So there was three classes. Um, now the lower class, who was paying for everything, um, got got no resources from it. So they all got together, the three classes, <laughs> and the 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 one that was twenty million people was represented by it. it had its representatives of the poor class, which this sounds good, right? This sounds like it's progressive. They get this, say, 
This sounds crazy. Like, okay, in in modern terms, this would be like all of the workers in America electing one person, like just like Joe Plummer, to represent yeah. all workers. And then like all religious leaders, all the churches got together and they, they got one cardinal to represent the, yeah, the I'm not sure that how they even picked that out. That had to have been kind of a weird thing. You know what and I mean? Cause that, these... That's a somewhat of a political move, right? You represent 20 million people, but you're a nobody still. Yeah, you didn't you're the... have any power, really. You're the union leader of literally every worker in the country. And... But you're poor. You're not. You know yeah. I mean? Usually you're... <laughs> it's very odd. So they all got together. So right now, so the, the big problem... So Francis is a, a long, you know, warring with, with England... So they were supporting the American Revolution. This was a money pit. Now they say um, of $1.5 billion in, in, in the late 1700s. I don't know how much that is in today's money, but <laughs> it's a lot more, right? Um, so they all got together. But the, the king class and then the, the noble class, they kind of liked the way things are. They had that old, that old saying of, I kind of like how things are right right now. Right. And the poor class said, this is going nowhere. It's time to break up, right? Um, there's one thing I would like to interject. When we talked in the opening of the episode, we talk about all the different taxes. The reason France had like nine different types of tax is because um, when we pay tax, we pay federal and we pay state. And our state goes to the state house. Our federal goes to you know the, the Washington, D.C. or whatever. And then they distribute the money how they will. The the tax system back in France was like you paid the clergy with a tithe, like one tenth of everything, um, for God. And then there was also another tax where you like gave them food and stuff. And then there was a, a tax of the king. And then there's another tax of the king. And then there's another tax of the king for war that never actually ended, even though it was supposed to like that was a temporary tax. So like, if if you if you're imagining that you know, one corrupt, like, Sheriff of Nottingham from Robin Hood comes by and yeah. takes all your money. It, that's not the case. It is, you just get hit with taxes so often, so frequently, and from so many sides that half of all of your money, no matter what you did for a job, if you're in the lower 98% of people, you got hit nine times in a year from all sides. Or, or, or yeah, you'd have thugs show a, up. And that Robin Hood example is a good one, too, because... It wasn't fair, and the tax collectors. It wasn't. There wasn't any accountability with them, so they could hit you more than once. It wasn't fair, and it was you know it was suffocating. They literally took everything you had that you were starving to death. Now the the government that she walked into, um, in ten years they had three different constitutions and five different government structures. So <laughs> if that doesn't tell you that just things were a mess, that they had plenty of resources, it just wasn't being distributed well. And I do see why they wanted to support, and we'll get into that some of that later. But this is the mess that she that she walked into. So she she married into <laughs> some big problems. That yeah, that is like um, if you're on a ship that hasn't like gotten food or water for you know uh, thirty days, and there's about to be a mutiny. And then suddenly the captain is like, by the way, I'm getting married. We just picked her up on the island 10 minutes ago, but she's my new wife. And it's like, you're marrying into a mutiny. You're marrying into a mutiny. You're going to get mutinied. Like, it's, it, the, she, the writing was on the wall. She did, have a, she did have a reputation, Joe, as being a high-maintenance woman, though. Yeah. I think <laughs> Even as far as queens go. 
She, <laughs> she was a big shopper even before it all this went down. <laughs> um, so let's, if if you're up for it, let's talk about the the pros and cons of. Um, we mentioned Tasha Yurich and her book Insight. She talks about um, two things. She talks about um, unicorn sort of mirrors, like where she thinks you should limit the feedback you get to somebody who is a trusted advisor who has your best interest at heart, but that they won't pull punches. Like if you're thinking, I'll just go to my wife or my husband or I'll just go to my, you know, my closest friend and ask them to give me the feedback I need to make me a better person. They may have the best uh, reasons to not tell you those things <laughs> because they're so close to you. Like they risk a lot by telling you what your blind spots are. Um, and and they 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 still love you too. They, they I think they have the parental or you know they have that partner love that they they like you so much that yeah those are true. But you're so good at other things that you know that's how I feel. Like yeah that is true, but I'm not right. trying to make you perfect and. Uh... So the the part of Tasha Yurich's research or, or or advice, this part I don't like. She she frequently flips back and forth between talking about um, studies, and then she'll talk about like her um, her business coaching service for a chapter, or like she'll talk about kind of her opinion. So like some of it I I will sort of take or or, or give her you know leave it or take it as you will. Um, the one that she says where she says you should limit it to one person who you meet every week and, you know, don't clutter yourself up with too many people giving you feedback. Just have one trusted advisor who is good at it, who has your best interest at heart, but isn't too soft handed to like not give you the hard news. Um, I go the opposite way a little bit um, because I come from a creative background. I say get feedback from a lot of people. Uh, do it like Socrates. Like talk to as many people as possible who are qualified enough to give you feedback in the area that you're looking at. I think the latter there too. Is, are, how many? You, there's not going to be one or two people that are qualified to speak about everything. Right. You know, I talk to you about certain things, and I talk to other people about other things. I talk to things that you're an expert at, the things that you have less experience, and I'm not going to bring up to you, but. Right, business and social stuff I, I take to you, Todd. And then if it is something where it's like um, deep creative stuff or, or uh, things about structuring my life so that um, I don't get burnt out, I, I, I go to you know other people. I go to friends who are professionals or that have the, the experience to talk about it. Um, we had an episode long ago about mentorship. And one of the things that we covered in that episode were studies saying that you shouldn't go to a mentor who is – very old and wise and who has been in the business forever you should seek somebody who is about six months ahead of you right in your profession so if you're looking for someone to point out um here are the flaws for you as a person pick people who are old wise and who have your best interest at heart if you're looking for somebody to help with your business or your profession find somebody who's just a little bit ahead of you and that's that i found that to be so true and what happens is people forget all the pain points of their business or their relationship things. When they've been doing it too long, they've got their 10,000 hours, they're such an expert, they they kind of will, they'll dismiss those feelings. And they had them too, but they've forgotten those pains. Yeah. So someone from 12 months ago will remember it and they'll know how to maneuver it. They'll be able to empathize and they'll be able to show you action. And also times have changed too. And the, the challenges are a little bit different for a newer, whatever, let's just say in business. 
it's a more competitive place now. You know, cost per leads up and labor costs more. And so there's a lot of times they, they really can't relate that they're on a different planet at this point. Absolutely. That is such, yeah, the age of the person you're talking to and how long ago they ran a business, that is so relevant to getting new information and like up to date and yeah, figuring out where to go next. I mean, if you're if you're talking to Warren Buffett about how to invest your money, all of his information comes from a time when index funds were the best way to go. Like <laughs> you'll get you'll get totally different advice depending on, you know, how new into the business they are. Um, but on a personal level, like if if like I was talking about um the guy that showed up at our public speaking club and sounded like a mad person because he was like, I want to be rich and date a supermodel. Um, that it, he would have so benefited from having a large diversity of people who are willing to give him bad advice. Um, same for me. Uh, the The best advice I ever got about creative work was to get a better head for business. Um, I went through almost all of my sort of creative career thinking that all I would have to do is um, write or or draw or whatever I'm doing, just be very creative and very skilled. That is not the case. Like the, the people who I've talked to in life who have taken me aside and been like, you're lacking in these business areas. You, you need to know how to run this like a business. You need to be able to market yourself. That's the better advice I got. And that, that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have people who were good social mirrors for me. That's funny because I had the exact opposite. <laughs> I thought it was all marketing and all and investing and, and the opposite. Instead of working on getting better and working on my skills, <laughs> I thought you could just be like your friend was, or like the guy who was in that club with you and think, well, Speaker if I just assistant. market myself, people will buy me and people will like me. Yeah. And that's not true. You need both. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds obvious, but it isn't. And a lot of people fall into that. They just think that, you know, and that's why I, I think, um, and I hate coaching because it sounds kind of spammy now, um, but you got to get coached up on everything. For this show, um, we work on, we've worked with a vocal coach who has done wonders for us. Yeah. We were so, they identify, uh, her name is Leslie. She's a great, um, I'd recommend her to anybody. Um, after an hour class with her, you're exhausted. But Joe and I realized that we didn't even know how to read properly. I mean, we were just, we were blind to it. Things that we thought we had a pretty good grasp on, we found out that we were we were in elementary school, and now we're probably in high school. But if you get coached up by pros, when you go out and hire someone with, uh, like I have a, right now for my voice coach, I have, I'm taking singing lessons, and, and my coach is a opera singer. So I listen to him. Um, I'm there to learn and get better. So you're already kind of, putting yourself in that position as a subordinate as you're going to listen to them. And I think that's important. Yeah. I I think that you're 100% correct. It's getting a diversity of opinions, but that are still relevant. Like like you said, the voice coach thing. That is a, such a good example. It's you and I came together and it's like, oh, I have the creative background. You have the presentation, the marketing. But that was such a blind spot for both of us. Like, I was like, I didn't even think about what words we were inflecting. Like, that was so strange. Um, so the, the, let's let's break that down as, like, here are the three different styles of social mirror that you're looking for. You can look for uh, Tasha Yurich's, um unicorn style, which is find the one person who is going to have your best interest at heart. Take them aside. Tell them, you know, here's when my presentation is. 
I want you to listen to it. Or here's a video of me presenting. Or here's here's you know here's a, a, a I'm about to give a speech in front of the board or or in a room or in a class. Whatever you're doing, give them access to it. Let them see you do the thing you want to improve on. And then tell them, I want a lunch per week with you so that we can have check-ins and so that you can help be my mirror. And so you can tell me where I'm looking harsh, where I'm being too soft, where I'm, you know, being too protective. Um, that's one style. That is the the one mirror, one person, one unicorn. You can do it like what we talked about, which is basically the Socrates method. Meet lots and lots of people. Uh, intentionally go out of your comfort zone to find people who tangentially relate to your blind spots like a, a vocal coach which we didn't think about um singers we're not singers i mean now todd is but um it, i i found people who were in business and i'm not a business person i'm i'm a creative writer so find people who are outside of your sphere who are tangentially related get as many free opinions as you can <laughs> uh todd keeps paying for classes i go to uh speaking groups and and you know uh clarion style writing groups I, I try to get it for free but it's whatever benefits you the most and then the third style that we haven't quite covered yet is um well you get better at it too joe i think once yeah. you once you kind of let your guard down and then once you see the results the the people that we've worked with on public speaking and presentations a lot of them, they, they fight so much, but when they actually get the, the feedback from other people on how good it was from their bosses, from their spouses, um, from their coworkers, from people in their friend group, then it has credibility. Then you have credibility. Then they're willing to listen a little bit harder. So once you get used to saying, okay, I want to get better. I want, I'm getting ready to listen. I'm going to set my feelings aside. I sought these people out. I'm going to follow through. Once you start getting the results, you, you, you look to, you think, what else, other parts of my life can I improve in? Yeah. Seeing people get fast results and then thinking about how much you want them yourself. Like I've I've gotten jealous of people I've seen who are doing this. Like they'll they'll have me and five other people on tap that they are getting advice from to improve their career. And I'll just be there to help them with like, here's how to structure a story in a very small, simple way so that your boss will listen to you. But they'll have four other people they're working with and they will rapidly improve and it's you scary, know, right? That snowball. Upgraded. You're like, yeah. they're becoming a monster right before right. your eyes. Yeah, I've worked with someone, Joanne, my wife's that way. I mean, she kept getting better and better. It's just slow and steady, and you're like, oh, my goodness. this She's going to be a beast, and she is now, you know? Yeah, the last speech I heard her deliver, that was amazing. Um, yeah, and and the uh, it's ironic you you mentioned Joanne. The, the one that we're sort of uh, dancing around is pairing up with somebody who is skilled and then, you know, in Lyndon B. Johnson's case, we used him as an example in one of our episodes. Um, he paired up with Lady Bird Johnson, and she was really, really good at public speaking. And she kept giving Lyndon Johnson advice. Anytime he would give a public speech or anytime he would, you know, give a political presentation or, or something that was public or at least to where she could hear it, she would – he'd call her. And there's some really – fabulous and kind of adorable recordings of him saying yes ma'am yes ma'am as she tells him you're speaking too fast you seemed flustered you were out of breath in the section <laughs> so well, and, and Lyndon B. Johnson if people don't know the history of him he is an, a difficult man to say the least 
Yeah, he's a maniac. <laughs> but when it came to his wife, Lady Bird, and you listen to those the audios in some one of our new uh, one of our uh, previous episodes, it's hilarious. She's reading him the riot act, and he is yes, ma'aming her, uh, Texas tough guy, you know. <laughs> and she's just so. And that was a time of more sexist time, right? Late the mid sixties, late sixties, right? That women didn't have a lot to offer, and he knew better, so. I think that's another thing to recognize somebody who's better than that than you at something, and, and then telling them that and saying, "Hey, I need I need what you got." You know, Lyndon yeah. B. Johnson did that with his wife. And it doesn't take as much as it. it the thing we're trying to hammer home is a social mirror is um, they take less time and effort than being a mentor. If you have five good mirrors, that's as good as one really amazing mentor, but it's quicker and it's cheaper and you can just ask people, I need 15 minutes of feedback and that is a lot easier to swallow than I need you to help correct my life and follow me around for you know months at a time. Um, now, I, I didn't want to end this episode with just saying isn't Mary Antoinette a silly young girl who screwed up, you know, the the fall of a nation or or who was, you know, said something like let them eat cake. I know we've already kind of diffused that one or or busted that myth. Um but can we sort of break down how bad the PR for her was? Like when we say she had no social mirror, there was a reason. Like she kind of had a country ganging up on her and she was like she had her advisor or her her advice and and like her resources were being chipped away, right? She was, and you know, she was married at fourteen, and, and she was from another country. She was kind of gifted into this life, and yeah, she like any princess or, or queen, she was an elaborate dresser. Um, a lot of her, her the people around her were appointed for her too, important positions. So it was not just her. She had zero experience doing this, and not a lot of family support because her family was in in another country. Um, she was blamed for talking um, her husband into the $1.5 billion investment that was the American Revolution. But historians have said it's very unlikely that the king would have listened to her. <laughs> it's very unlikely. And the tax system crime, the greed was widespread through all the nobles and the religious people. The greed was, in those two upper classes, it was not just one woman. Now, her... She tried to flee the country when things got really bad with her husband. It was said that she tried to stay, and he insisted on going. And he was beheaded because of this. She was tried for treason with less than 1% of the evidence they had on her. Her husband had over 35 charges of treason and different things he had done. They had nothing on her. But they humiliated her at the end of her life. Um, She was put in a cell with full visibility where she would barely eat and had to go to the bathroom in front of other people. Um, but the one telling thing to me about this and what I want to take away and end the show on this was when she was going to the um, going to have her head, you know, to be decapitated, to be executed, she apologized to her executioner when she stepped on his foot a moment before she was beheaded. Wow. Marie Antoinette never said, let them eat cake. In fact, the famous phrase was most likely written by her political adversaries who were hell-bent on enraging the public into beheading her. However, Marie Antoinette was absolutely guilty of spending vast amounts of money 
on a private little getaway on palace lands, which allowed her to pretend to be a peasant. She and her friends wore milkmaid outfits made of extravagant fabrics that could have purchased real farms and carried porcelain buckets to milk prize cows wearing ribbons. This is the sort of tone-deaf behavior that contributed to her eventual execution. And if Maria had kept a qualified social mirror nearby at all times, she might have eventually escaped back to Austria. A good social mirror can help you sand away those rough edges of your personality. They can help you tone down your annoying laugh or help you appear less stern in front of colleagues or give you advice on your appearance. A qualified social mirror can be the difference between being promoted to a corner office or being stuck in the cubicles because you're not a good social fit. A qualified social mirror can help you become the leader of a revolution or having your head be the first one that lands in the basket. You've been listening to the Reengineer You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Mm-hmm.